Now on Netflix. Inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. This podcast features criminologists discussing sensitive themes and topics. Listener discretion is advised. After a woman is sentenced to life under a strict felony murder law, many would reevaluate how this crime is defined. This is the Liesl Allman story. Hey, Megan, how's it going today? It's going. We're here. (laughs) (laughs) Here we are. I hope you'll like today's episode, Megan, as much as I do, because we will be discussing one of my very favorite topics of, if you heard the intro, you'll know, felony murder. Yes. And actually, if you are one of our supporters, then some of these issues will sound quite familiar to you because our January exclusive episode covered the murder of Michelle Lay and the case against Tyra Patterson. And very similar themes would emerge here. So for me, this has always been an area, whenever people ask us, if you could change anything about the criminal justice system, what would it be? This is usually in both of our top threes, would you say? Oh, I'd absolutely agree. Yes. All right. So let's meet Liesl. Liesl was born on Christmas Day in 1976, and she grew up in Denver, Colorado. Liesl's parents divorced when she was around 11 years old. But luckily, it wasn't very contentious, and her mother remarried, and the three of them would go on to co-parent Liesl. And she would have a normal upbringing by all accounts. In fact, it was was quite loving because all three of them were very involved in her life. She was described as a popular girl with a lot of friends and somewhat of a hippie. A high school classmate described her as being, quote, all about peace and love. Oh, That's how you would describe me, right, Megan? Oh, sure. Yeah, that's exactly (laughs) how. Me too. Ditto. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) After graduating high school, like many young adults, Liesl wasn't sure exactly what she wanted to do. So she began community college to kind of buy her some time while she figured things out. But she decided, you know, this wasn't really for her. And she dropped out after only a semester. But in the summer of 1997, she heard about an opportunity that would change the course of things for her. You see, there was a forest fire that had destroyed over 12,000 acres of a mountain town just outside of Denver, and a later flood would dump over 300,000 cubic yards of sediment in the area. So this area was in need of some serious cleanup, and a local group called the Diamondback Services at the time took it upon themselves to go to the area to help clean up the debris, to help put sandbags up for the flooding issues, and to retrench the ground to divert some of the water. Liesl felt a real call to join their efforts, 
And she loved this type of work because not only was she doing something helpful for the community, she really loved spending time in nature. So this was something that really worked for her. Unfortunately, though, she was also hanging out with a new group of people. And many of these people were older than her and not necessarily into the best of behaviors, I guess you could say. So this is Um, not the group that's working on the cleanup. It is. Oh, it is the group. So they are all doing something good for the community. But um, a lot of these individuals were into drugs. They were partying a lot. Okay. And many of Liesl's friends say that it was at this time that she started to party a little more and get involved in drugs. And she possibly wasn't before. Okay. Now, in particular, one of the loggers who was working on the restoration project, a man by the name of Sean Cheever. Now, he befriended Liesl. And it wasn't long before the two became romantically involved. Now, Sean lived at a nearby lodge with 10 other loggers. But this lodge was basically just a large barn. There was no electricity, no running water. It wasn't really the best environment. There was just a lot of partying going on, a lot of drama. But, you know, this was fun for for these young people. They were having a good time. And, you know, despite, you know, despite this crazy environment, Lisa moved into the lodge. Now, she would first move into a room of her own. But then she would end up kind of moving in with Sean because Sean had a room in the lodge as well. Okay. So essentially she was living with him while she also maintained this other space in the lodge. All right. This was not a healthy relationship. So there's a few reasons. Now, Sean was already in a common law marriage with somebody else. So that's problematic. But he was also sexually involved with many other women as well. And I think perhaps the most problematic was that he was very volatile towards Liesl. And she soon realized that this was a very bad situation and she said she needed to get out of it. Yeah, this is a recipe for disaster. Yeah. And, I, you know, I think it's great that she had the foresight to know that this wasn't something that was going to serve her well. Sure. Now, to get out of the relationship, Liesl enlisted the help of a friend of hers back in Denver, Demetria Suriano, or Demi as she was known. Some reports say that she didn't ask her parents because she didn't want them to know about the conditions that she was living in at the lodge. And also, they didn't know about Sean Cheever. So likely, Liesl felt that Demi was a safer option to try to enlist help from. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. But Demi was facing some of her own relationship issues at the same time. So just for a little background, Demi was involved with a man from her high school years that she had recently reconnected with, a man by the name of Dion Gerst. And he was not a good guy. In fact, he was a self-proclaimed skinhead. So I guess we could say he is the opposite of a good guy. Sure. And I didn't know this, but in the early 20th century, Colorado had the second highest Klan population in America. There was actually a Ku Klux Klan parade through downtown Denver in the 1920s that was led by the governor. And then in 1984, the white supremacist Silent Brotherhood gunned down local Jewish radio host Alan Berg. Now, by 1991, Denver was home to an estimated 400 skinheads, and they would disrupt Martin Luther King Day celebrations, and they would cause disruptions on Hitler's birthday. Yeah, I wouldn't have guessed that Colorado. I wouldn't have guessed that that would have had the highest or one of the higher populations. Yeah. And this was the kind of stuff that Dion was into. And I'm sure you won't be surprised to learn that he also had quite the criminal history, which included aggravated robbery, assault and trespassing. In fact, Megan, do you want to know how Demi became reacquainted with him? Don't say in jail. (laughs) Worse. He had stolen her mom's car. And somehow after this happened, the two began a relationship. I don't know the details. Not sound like a healthy foundation. 
No, and this relationship was extremely abusive from the beginning. And it's very likely that Demi was scared of him. In fact, she would later say that he had Confederate flags around his apartment, along with, quote, torture instruments and guns. Oh, wow. So both of these women, friends, were looking to leave abusive men. And Liesel and Demi decided that they would be each other's safety net and that they would move in together to help support each other through this time. Sounds great. Yeah, sounds like a good plan. Problem is, Megan, during this conversation, which was taking place at Demi's apartment, Dion walked in and allegedly heard Liesel talking about how badly Sean was treating her. Now, there are two versions of what went down next. One version is that when Dion overheard this, he offered to go up to the lodge with a few of his friends to help move her stuff out of Sean's room. But another version says that Dion did not actually offer to help, but that Liesel specifically enlisted Dion and his friends to burgle and terrorize Sean as a means of exacting revenge for how poorly he treated her. Okay. Now, this is going to become very important later when we discuss the implications of what happens here. So keep these two versions in mind. All right. Either way, Megan, a bunch of angry skinheads going to this random guy's place to get some of his girlfriend's stuff sounds like a bit of a recipe for disaster, would you say? Absolutely. Yeah. But on November 12th, 1997, that is exactly what they did. That morning, Demi and Liesel had breakfast together. And according to Liesel, she told her friend that she was feeling uneasy about the guys helping her move her stuff. She was having second thoughts about what they had planned to do. But Demia told her that you can't back out now because Dion had already made the plan to help and he was prepared to do that. And people just don't back out on Dion. Okay. And based on his history, we could see why. So around noon, the women met up with Dion and two of his friends. One man by the name of Matthias Janig, known as Teo, and I'll be calling him Teo throughout the rest of the episode, and Stephen Dupre. Now, to fit all the stuff, they decided they had to take two cars on the 40-mile journey to the lodge, which was located outside of Denver in Buffalo Creek. Dion insisted that Liesel ride with Teo in his red Trans Am while the others went in Demi's car. I'm not sure why this is the setup. I don't know if Dion was maybe trying to set these two up romantically or, you know, what the reason was. But Liesel is going in the car with this man she just met named Teo. Okay. At 1.45 p.m., the four of them, now we're talking about Liesel, Demi, Dion, and Steve, walked into the lodge. Meanwhile, Teo stayed outside as a lookout. Now, why would you need a lookout if you aren't planning on doing anything illegal? Seems strange, right? Well, you said they were, she was moving her stuff out? Yeah, but why do you need a lookout if you're just helping a friend move, right? It just seems like... Well, wasn't her her partner violent? And when they expected possibly if he came home, they want to be tipped off. I could see an argument here. Yes, I know. But based on what they're going to say they were doing and what they did, that's why this is going to be interesting because, you know, Sean wasn't home at this point. Okay. Okay. And the other residents at the lodge were there when the crew arrived there. Um, So it's likely that Teo was on the lookout for Sean so that if Sean were to come home, he could alert the others. Sure. Since Liesel's things were in both Sean's room and the room she had used by herself when she had first started living in the lodge, Liesel and Demi began gathering the things out of Liesel's individual room while Dion and Steven went to Sean's room. And you could probably guess, Megan, that they weren't just going to gather Liesel's stuff, not with the kind of background that these guys had, right? Right. They were going to steal were, from him. They also, what'd you say? They were going to steal from him, steal his stuff. Yep. They also stole many things that belonged to Sean. including two speakers, two camcorders, a tripod, and a box of CDs. 
Now, some of our listeners are probably confused. <laughs> so what some of these things are. The but this, <laughs> so this was the 90s. So some of these would have been pretty expensive items. If you came, if you went to someone's home and took their CDs today, they'd probably be thankful that you got them out of their <laughs> space for them. But back then they were a thing, right? Yes. Yeah, oh, and I forgot is, to uh, mention. Around our time. They're around our age. So, yes. Yeah. And this was after, I forgot to mention that this was after the two men removed a padlock with a bolt cutter that was on Sean's door. So they're breaking and entering here. Yep. And allegedly the girls weren't very happy about this because the endeavor just went from getting Liesl's stuff out to a full-blown burglary. Yeah. But they were scared of Dion. And so they say they went along with it. But this was not a secret burglary. There were plenty of people who saw this going on. Remember, there were several other loggers that were in the lodge yeah. to witness Dion walking out with Sean's things. And they called the police to report the burglary. Of course. And as the police were being called, the group quickly got back in their respective cars and sped off. Only minutes after speeding away, Liesl says that she saw a police cruiser behind Teo's Trans Am. And the cruiser had their sirens on. But she noticed Teo was not pulling over. So she asked Teo if he was going to pull over. And he said, nope, and simply just sped up, swearing that he would never go back to jail. Right. That's a great plan for not going back to jail. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, it reminds Evading us of arrest, that, right? Not, it's not, yeah. Destruction of justice. <laughs> not great. Role. Great plans. And in later interviews, Liesl would explain how she was scared for her life because they were now in a high-speed police chase and this was going on all the way back to Demi's condo in Denver. Remember, I mentioned it was about 40 miles away. So this was a high-speed yeah. chase that was going on for a little while. Right. And at some point, they did lose the police car because he was swerving a lot to try to, you know, going through back roads. Like, this was really an intense situation. Um, once the car came back into sight, Teo told Liesl to take the wheel as he retrieved a firearm leaned out the window and started firing at the police cruiser behind him. This is, again, yeah, not this the best gone, way to avoid jail. Oh, I mean, this has just gone also from bad to horrible, on, you know, worst case scenario. This weapon was a Chinese SKS semi-automatic rifle modified with a 30-round magazine. Oh, wow. So it's pretty clear here that Teo wasn't looking to just scare the police no. off. He was looking to cause serious harm and probably just kill them at this point. Teo fired several shots while he sped up and then broadsided one car and was rear-ended by another car. At one point, Liesl said she opened the door and tried to escape, to which Teo said, where the fuck are you going? Get back in the car. And he continued to drive towards Demi's condo. Again, Liesl reported being terrified for her life. She just watched this man who she didn't even know shoot a huge rifle at a police cruiser. Who knew what he would be capable of or what he would do to her next? Yeah, I can believe she was terrified. The officers alerted other local officers about what was going on. And there were two officers who had heard of the chase and they were on the lookout for Teo's car. In fact, they found it and they started following him to Demi's condo and watch as he exited the vehicle and tried to get into Demi's front door. What the officers did not see, however, was that Teo was holding a gun. Brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. 
We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. So as Teo ran off to try to get into this apartment, Liesel, you know, was surrendering, put right. her hands up, right. and she was tackled by the officers. Right. Liesel was then cuffed and placed in a police cruiser and remained there while the rest of this event unfolds. Now, this is a crucial point here. So keep in mind, Liesel is cuffed in the back of a police car. And now while Liesel was being cuffed, there were close to 100 officers now on the scene trying to apprehend Teo, who at this point had disappeared into an alcove or what you would call a stairwell of the apartment building. Okay. Two officers pursued him into the alcove of this building, and one of these officers was Bruce Vandergott, and this officer was 47 at the time. Now, Bruce rounded the corner of the alcove, and as he did so, Teo shot him over 10 times, unfortunately, leaving Bruce no time to react. Tragically, Bruce died immediately, and Teo then took Bruce's gun and shot himself in the head. Oh, okay. So now the officer and Teo are both deceased. And now Liesel is the only witness or suspect, and she is taken to the police station and interrogated for about seven hours without an attorney, mind you. Because Liesel had been in the police car the whole time that this unfolded, she had no idea that Teo was dead. And she said she was scared for her life. She was scared that Teo would hurt her if she spoke. So she ended up not being very cooperative with the police. And she lied to them about a few things. And this enraged them because one of their own had just been murdered. Sure. Actually, some reports go as far as to say that she was very combative during the questioning. Okay. So the police are not happy with Liesl. She's not cooperating with them. And, you know, they don't know what to make of this situation. Right. And this was further complicated as Liesl later admitted that she lied to the police many times during the interrogation. But unbeknownst to Liesl, she was in serious trouble because although she had not been the one to pull the trigger, she was facing a murder charge as established by Colorado's felony murder law. Now let's take a moment to talk a bit about felony murder. Felony murder was a law established in England in the 1700s that stated that when somebody was murdered during or after the commission of certain felonies, including burglary, Everyone present during the first felony is guilty of the murder, whether or not they caused it. Interestingly, England abolished felony murder in 1957 for it being too severe. But many states in our country still have felony murder charges on the books. Actually, 48 as of this recording still recognize felony murder. And Colorado is one of those states. They don't we'll talk about use where it, though. Like, you know, it's used more sparingly by some states. It is. And during our discussion, we'll talk a little bit about Colorado, which is where this case takes place, okay. and talk a little bit about the differences between the states. Okay. But, you know, in Liesl's case at the time, essentially law enforcement were looking to prove a predicate felony of which burglary is the least violent and then prove that Liesl was in immediate flight from burglary when Officer Bruce Vandergott was murdered. Although Liesl said she had no intention of burglarizing Sean Cheever, she made many incriminating statements to the police that would end up working against her. She told the police that the night before the move, she told them that Dion said, what else does he have? And she told the police, I opened my big mouth and I told them he had a couple of big speakers. She also told the police that she said to Dion, take it easy on him, which prosecutors said was evidence of anticipatory danger and threat. And 
She went on to say that Dion said, I'll do the best I can. And she told the police that she said, just don't kill him. I can see why they thought she was complicit in the burglary, for sure. I can, too. Um, During the interviews, Liesel seemed to go in whatever directions the investigators led her or the interrogators led her. For example, when asked if she had enlisted the skinheads for, quote, muscle, she sighed and said, I guess, yeah. And then she proceeded to use the word muscle in later conversations. So the reason I bring that up is there's some research that talks about false confessions and what happens during interrogations and sometimes the use of terms that are given to suspects will be fed back. But regardless, the day after the shooting, Liesel was charged with burglary, menacing and assault. Now, the Denver district attorney said that he was holding her for further questioning, but not pursuing a homicide case against her. But that would quickly change because there was a lot of unrest in Denver in 1997 and the police were under enormous pressure and in fact, they were in great danger. Just six days after Liesel's arrest, two skinheads gunned down an African immigrant at a bus stop and then shot a woman who tried to help the victim. Shortly after that, a dead pig with a badge drawn on its belly and the name of Vandergott painted on its side was left in a police station parking lot. Two days after that incident, a man shot at a police officer in an apartment complex and Denver cops marched out in bulletproof vests with bloodhounds and helicopters going from door to door in search of suspects. Now, there was a lot of media attention around these events, and Bruce's widow was very outspoken at the time. Remember, Teo was deceased, so somebody needed to take responsibility for Bruce's death. I was going to point that out. You know, if Teo had survived, I, you know, the outcome likely would have been very, very different. But now they need someone um, to blame and someone to punish and someone to make an example of and someone to serve to the public to show that they are, you know, punishing this crime seriously. Yeah, and that's exactly what happens to Liesel. She was likely the scapegoat as prosecutors turned their attention to her and contended that she took the wheel willingly and that she also assisted Teo during the standoff at the at the apartment complex. So I Mind mean, you, there's no evidence. I, I find that part hard to believe just knowing that she had just met him, but I'm not convinced at all that yet that she wasn't part of the burglary. And again, there's no evidence to support this notion because by all accounts, Liesl was handcuffed and she wasn't even near Teo during the standoff. Right. But things weren't things were not looking good for Liesl regardless. And unfortunately, her family couldn't afford a private defense attorney. Mm -hmm. So she wasn't even, um, you know, her family was standing by her, but they weren't able to provide her with the proper um, help that she needed to fight charges so severe. Sure. So she did get a public defender, but. In this kind of case, I think she would have been better served with a high-powered defense attorney. Sometimes, you know, unfortunately, the resources just aren't there. Um, And there are great public defenders, but it's possible in this Mm -hmm. instance, as you said, that the resources would have seriously helped. She sounds like she needed someone who was also probably really skilled in the media. Yes. And and that might not necessarily be a local public defender in this case. Mm -hmm. Something else that was working against Liesel is one of the first responding officers was now changing his story. So initially, there was no mention about Liesel having a firearm, but all of a sudden, the story now went that she passed a weapon to Teo during the standoff, yeah. and that is a huge discrepancy. Sure. The officers also changed their claims to say that she was being combative and aggressive during the arrest. Okay. Okay, so let's break down some of these issues that were at play. Let's go back to the concept of immediate flight. Because this is one of the elements of the felony murder law at the time. 
Right. Now, if Liesl was in the back of the police car for a full 10 minutes before the officer was shot, her flight from the burglary would have ended at the moment of arrest, right? Okay. Uh, you would think, maybe. I don't, this is just kind of food for thought right now. Okay, so possibly. Okay. But if she was assisting Teo by being combative in the police car, then the prosecution could contend that she was still participating in the felony or in flight even while being detained. So remember, I said the officers changed their story. Yeah. It looks like they're changing it to fit this very narrow definition. It does seem that way. Now, Liesl's case goes to trial because she was not interested in a plea deal. And I can understand why. Well, I'm sorry. Um, she was charged with it, felony murder at this point. Yes. Oh, she sure was. And yes. with felony murder, was she facing 30 years to life? So, so the prosecution actually rejected a plea deal proposal of 30 years for a lesser charge. Oh, OK. And this could have. This could have gotten her out of jail in 18 years or less. But the prosecution had a pretty strong case because the prosecution had both felony law murder prerequisites in place. The predicate felony, mm -hmm. an immediate flight from that felony, which resulted in murder. All right. Now, the predicate, the predicate burglary charge was confirmed by witnesses at the lodge. So that's an easy one. Right. And then, of course, this new testimony that she was being combative during arrest shows that there was still flight going on. Okay. Now, the trial lasted 10 days, beginning on July 8th, 1998. Um, what do you think? Liesl taking the stand here? Plus, I'm sorry, I just wanted to point out that also yeah. people, the public, they're not going to appreciate someone who's killed a police officer. You know, there's going to be Not certain... at this time when tensions, yeah, tensions right. were really high. Right. Um, so, uh, you know, I think the, there's also the, the trial or the case is already colored by that. Absolutely. So will she take the stand in her own defense? I mean, I would think she'd have to. It's never a good move, but I would, I would, <laughs> it's not a good move. Um, and it would be very bad for her. So uh, I would think she would kind of have to do explain. However, given the combative nature and the, maybe the lies that she told in, in the interrogation, her attorney wouldn't be that wise probably to put her up. And you're right. The attorney did not let her take the stand. And as you kind of hinted at, I think this was a bad move in this case. Usually it's a good move, but I think Liesl needed to explain yeah. her side of the story in a case like this. Yeah. But I, I agree. I think the defense attorney saw the discrepancies and the lies during interrogation. Obviously on cross-examination, that would have looked really bad for her. It would have, yeah. Now, after deliberating for only a few hours, the jury announced that they were hung. And the judge sent them back and said, well, keep trying until you reach a verdict. Judges sometimes do that because it was only, but you said it was only a few hours? Uh, it was only a few hours. So yes, that was, I do agree. Sometimes I don't think it's fair for judges to push juries into a verdict if they're sure. deadlocked. But I agree. If it's just a few hours. Yeah. Um, but I think I, I think I could understand what the jury was grappling with because according to the law, it seems like Liesl may have been culpable, right? But- Many people believe probably that the law might just be being applied a little too harshly in this case. So, Absolutely. you know, we need to as a juror, you have to go by the letter of the law. But, well, you know, they might be struggling, too, with the facts. No, they might have been struggling with changing stories from the, like you said, there was changing stories. So they might have been struggling with what had they had the prosecution actually met the second prong of the yeah. flight that, you know, there could have been other issues, but I, I think, I don't think yeah. it's unreasonable for a judge after just a few hours to say, give it a second go. I don't, I don't either. One juror in particular that kept holding out didn't end up speaking saying, quote, I never did think she was guilty, but the prosecutors were making us feel that if we didn't put a stop to all of this violence with first degree murder, we weren't doing our jobs. 
So all of this violence, again, this shows yeah. what was going on in the community at the right. time and really how the media was reporting things. And they felt that they were letting down their community. Yeah, this is a lot of pressure. Convict. Because, you know, again, a policeman had been killed in the line of duty and somebody had to pay. Right. So this juror said, you know, OK, well, what could she get? Maybe three to five years. So the juror wasn't sure what the potential sentence was. So this right. juror said that they voted guilty thinking that she would get three to five years. Oh, boy. Now, Megan, what do you think? So they end up finding her guilty. Yeah. You think it was more than three to five years? Oh, it's felony murder. It's it's at least 30 years, if not life. I had 30 years to life, Lisa, somewhere in there. Lisa Allman was sentenced to life with no possibility of parole yeah. at the age of 22 years old. Wow. Yeah, this is it's a harsh sentence. It's always hard to fa- fathom these yeah. kind of sentences when, you know, she didn't pull a trigger, when it wasn't a plan to even, she wasn't in on a planned murder. You know, that seems obvious. Yes. So it is hard to for some people to make the leap. Others might say, well, look, she was a conspirator in this crime and it yeah. resulted in the death of a police officer and she shouldn't have been there mm-hmm. in the first place. Um, it is extremely harsh, though, uh, given the circumstances. Yeah, this is certainly not a cut and dry case by any means, no. which, again, is one of the reasons why I was drawn to it, yeah. because I find it so interesting. Um, Liesl's family tried to get media attention and tried to get help for their daughter, and they reached out to many prominent defense attorneys. But nine months after the trial, 12 teenagers and a teacher were gunned down by two students at Columbine High School. And this was in Liesl Almond's hometown of Littleton. Right. So as you could imagine, the public pretty much forgot about Liesl in that case because there was a lot more to focus on now. Oh, yeah. And that kind of took the news cycle. Oh, yeah. Nationally. Now, Liesl was able to enlist the help of an American journalist and author by the name of Hunter S. Thompson. Do you know him? I don't. You will. So Hunter S. Thompson first became famous after writing a book called Hell's Angels in 1967. And this book chronicled his time spent living and riding with the Hell's Angels Motorcycle Club for over a year. Now, this book was a firsthand account of their lives and experiences. He also later, and perhaps more famously, wrote Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas oh, in 1972. Okay, stop. I knew. <laughs> yes, I knew you did. I knew you would. Now, he also, I didn't know that much about him, but I, I learned a little um, for this case. He had he'd wrote many bold and often controversial pieces for Rolling Stone and many other po- uh, popular news outlets. And many refer to him as a figure of counterculture. Oh, yeah. He's a pretty interesting character. So if you're interested, read up on him. Well, you said that he also lived with the Hells Angels. So he's an ethnographer, which means someone who studies by immersing themselves in the culture. So they probably assumed he was part of this. Well, he's a journalist. He's a journalist, not an academic. But yes, that is that was, I guess you could right. say. Is it still considered an ethnography if it's done by a journalist and not a social scientist? I'm not sure. It's usually a researcher. Yeah. However, if you were saying like yeah. he was highly immersed in it, that's still a little I bit know. different than conducting an interview or uh, observing, yeah. you know, that, del- that does seem still more immersive. So it does. It for sure does. Anyway, while she was in prison, Liesl had read Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, and she wrote to him to explain her situation. And he was actually taken by her case and became one of her biggest supporters. Oh, wow. It took years, but in 2001, the National Association for Criminal Defense Lawyers entered the appeals process and the Liesl Almond Defense Fund was born. Jerry Goldstein, a nationally recognized criminal defense attorney, assembled the National Committee to Free Liesl Almond. 
Jerry Goldstein also enlisted the advice of Morris Dees, the chief trial counsel of the Southern Poverty Law Center, who in 1987 had bankrupted America's major KKK group by winning a verdict in a lynching case, and in 2000 had won a landmark lawsuit against the Aryan Nation's neo-Nazi compound in Idaho. That's pretty impressive. Not only that, Megan, there were some other people who were enlisted in this fight. Tell me if you recognize any of these people. Okay. Johnny Depp, Benicio Del Toro, Jimmy Buffett, John Cusack, Woody Harrelson. Yeah, it always helps in these cases when you have major star power behind you. So I have to assume that really moved the ball. Yeah. So the press was now listening. Mm -hmm. You have these huge people in the legal field and then you have, you know, these Hollywood stars that are behind this case. I also want to note here that Bruce's widow was very outspoken about her support for Liesel's release. Oh, and Yeah, so remember, at first, she was one of the ones pushing for Liesel's conviction, but now she was supporting Liesel's release, and it seemed that the public opinion was swaying in Liesel's direction. Very interesting turn of events. Yeah. Liesel was finally granted a retrial in June of 2005, and at this point, she pled guilty to burglary and accessory charges, and a judge approved a 20-year sentence in the community. Oh, I'm sorry. She had a trial or she pled guilty? That's a little So she was, she was granted a retrial, but then she was offered a plea. Okay, got it. And her plea came because the Colorado Supreme Court said that faulty jury instructions had invalidated her conviction on charges of burglary and felony murder. Okay, that makes sense. So... So Liesl was released from prison, but she was instructed that to live in the Denver area where she had to serve her community sanction. All right. How long had she spent in prison? Liesl was sentenced to 20 years. She had served eight years. The rest of the time was to be served in the community. Oh, I see. OK. Sorry. So she was sent, she was basically given a community sanction. So she was released, but she still had to be under court supervision for the remainder of her sentence of those 20 years. The judge in her case remarked, quote, it's time for forgiveness, compassion, and for Liesl to return to society. The money we would have spent on her continued incarceration can be used much more wisely elsewhere. Good luck, Liesl. Parole is no walk in the park, but it sure beats life in prison. That's sure true. That's very accurate. Well said. Yes. Yes. And unfortunately, I don't really know what happened to Liesl after this. Um, she faded from the press and I couldn't find out anything about where she is currently. I would imagine maybe she changed her name um, to just start fresh. So obviously we hope the best for her, but I couldn't find information on her whereabouts today. Well, sometimes that's good. No news is very, you know, good news. She's probably wanting to lead a quieter life now. I agree. I agree. So that kind of closes on what happened in Liesl's case. But I want to talk a little bit about the felony murder rule. Because there is a lot of reform nationwide, but we have a ways to go. Right. Some states have made some serious strides in the right direction. So Arkansas, California, Connecticut, Delaware, Maine, New Jersey, New York, North Dakota, Oregon, and Washington. Now, those states limit the felony murder rule to the actual perpetrators of the homicide. Mm, Great. In 2001, Colorado reformed their felony murder rule, moving the crime from first-degree murder to second-degree murder and changing the penalty from a Class 1 felony to a Class 2 felony. Okay. I'm not sure if Liesl's case played a role in this, but I would imagine it did in some ways. Her Her case, along with many other people that have kind of got swept under the broader definition of felony murder. Right. 
Now, you remember, there were a lot of other people involved in this case, right? Oh, sure. There was Demi and her boyfriend. All of them took pleas. They were not there for the murder. So they all... Um, I figured. They all took pleas. Yeah. So they weren't really under as much scrutiny as Liesl, but they all took pleas um, for the burglary charges. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Um, I know we just had a pretty long conversation on, I was talking about on our exclusive episode about felony murder, but anything you want to add here that we had talked about on that episode that you found important? Well, just in general, I'm not a fan of the felony murder rule at all, I believe. I believe we should follow in suit with England and eliminate it. I am glad, you know, reform is slow also. So I'm glad to see states moving in the right direction. I'd like to see more states do so. Anecdotally, you and I know several people who have been incarcerated under this antiquated rule. And the unfortunate part is that these people were not the perpetrators of a homicide, yet wound up serving substantially longer sentences than the actual perpetrators of the homicide because the perpetrators of the homicide Mm -hmm. were willing to take a plea and people who feel that they had not committed this act are are more likely to go to trial. So Mm -hmm. it winds up in a perversion of the system in that people who have not pulled the, you know, proverbial trigger, so to speak, wind up serving longer sentences, which I just do not believe serves Mm -hmm. any of the goals of uh, punishment or justice. So you know, I am just not a fan of felony murder in general. Yeah, I agree. And um, I would vote to totally reform the felony murder doctrine. And I'm glad to see that several states have. And I think we're you'll see a lot more movement in that direction. I don't know if you've heard of the Felony Murder Elimination Project. They do a lot of work in this area. If uh, If you're listening and you're interested, check them out to get some more information about what each state's doing and what reforms are being proposed. Also, the Sentencing Project has um, this report. It's called an on-ramp for extreme sentencing, and it focuses a lot on felony murder. And I used it for this episode, but I also found it really insightful. Um, So for people who are interested in learning more, I would definitely check out those two resources. And I think in our lifetime, we will see major shifts in felony murder. Well, look, in my lifetime, you know, my work focused on on bail reform and there's a bail reform movement for better or for worse happening right now yep. um and for better we, or for worse we had an episode not too long ago where you you were pleased at the end because uh instead of ending on a sour note i discussed all the progress we've made in terms of whether it's bail reform or eliminating junk sciences or accepting more science into the courts so mm-hmm. you know there's so many areas uh that need to be reformed but it happens. It does happen. It's mm-hmm. slow. And it's definitely possible in our lifetimes that we could see some movement on this issue. And until then, we should just keep covering it because it's so significant. Yes. And it is coverage like ours and so many others. Uh, it's media attention, like when you bring in a Johnny Depp and when you bring mm-hmm. in, you know, other uh, famous actors and powerhouse players uh, that are able to help make progress in these areas. Unfortunately, people like Liesl Allman are usually the people that feel the the brunt of these things. Like change doesn't happen until these types of cases, unfortunately. Um, so I hope we'll, we'll be covering less of these as, you know, we see these cases moving out, uh, you know, moving away from the direction. So, you know, like I said before, I really hope Liesl Allman was able to uh, live her life Um Whatever she's doing, I, I do hope that she was able to get back on her feet and, you know, reenter the community successfully. Me too. 
Megan, before we head out today, we have two supporter questions that I would love to take if you have the time. Of course, always for our supporters. Yes, <laughs> always. Okay, so the first question is, what country do you feel has the most preferred criminal justice system? Well, I will say that um, our country certainly does not. Um, I think we see countries like Sweden and Denmark probably doing things the best. I don't study comparative criminal justice, but Mm -hmm. I'm certainly aware of and even, you know, even England, when we went and we visited prisons, I was so shocked and surprised at the way they treat their inmates with such humanity. I often tell my students how simply having a curtain around the toilet is just such it, it seems like such a small token. It's not expensive, but just to make people feel like they have privacy and humanity. I think that really changes the feel of the environment in the prison. Um, But when we look at, I know it's Sweden and Denmark and probably some others you might know, the way they offer, you know, reentry services Mm -hmm. and work release, it's really, you know, it's so far above what we're doing in our country. And not surprisingly, their recidivism rates are much lower and just filing crime rates in general. Well said. I'd have to, uh, your sentiments are mine pretty much exactly. Uh, I do prefer the English model. We're modeled after the English model, but it seems that they're always mm-hmm. ahead of us yeah. in reforming the system and, and making it better, getting rid of the, you know, the worst parts. So I'd say the English model is a, is a strong one for me. Well, yeah. I mean, relevant to the case we just covered, right? They got rid of felony murder decades ago. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. That's a great question, though. Thank you for that. And our second and final question for today, our second and final question for today is, do you feel that there have been any laws or regulations passed that have been bad for the criminal justice system? I mean, (laughs) laws that are passed, like, yeah, (laughs) mandatory sentencing laws are bad for the system. If you ask me in every single way, then I can explain how they've been detrimental. Felony murder. Felony murder. Yes. I mean, I feel actually a lot of legislation that's passed um, that has been like overly punitive, really restrictive, especially in the since the advent of the tough on crime movement from the 90s has just had seriously detrimental consequences. I mean, we see accomplice liability in our state in New Jersey have grave consequences similar to felony murder, where you see individuals um, serving longer sentences than the, quote, trigger person simply because they didn't take a plea. So, I mean, I want to say those ones uh, in the way that they've captured and, you know, led to mass incarceration. But I also want to say on the back end, what happens with over incarceration, what's happened the last couple of years is that a a lot of people are indiscriminately released from prison without supervision because of overcrowding and there's nowhere to put them and money has run out. And this leads also to offenders who probably should not be released, who may be very dangerous, um, who need supervision. They are released into the community without adequate resources, and it's not going it's not going to be completely surprising when they reoffend. And so I think on the back, these front end laws lead to back end problems as well that can pose a danger to the community, an increased danger to us. Yep. And, you know, I wouldn't be me if I didn't also add to that, you know, reentry services and better you know, the laws and regulations that were, you know, trying to keep the people in prison who shouldn't be in the community. Also, helping people that are ready to reenter back to the community would also be, you know, doing both of those would be mm-hmm. very beneficial, yeah. I think, to both public safety and just 
you know, reentering um, recidivism and reentry as well. Sure. Another great question. Two thank excellent you. questions. Yes. Thank you so much. All right. Well, thank you all so much for listening today. And we will catch you next time on Women in Crime. Women in Crime is written and hosted by Megan Sachs and Amy Schlossberg. Our producer is James Varga. Script editing is by Abigail Bel Castro. Audio editing is by Siler Burr and Jose Alfonso. And music is by Dessert Media. If you enjoy the show, please remember to follow and leave a review. You can also support the show through Patreon, where you can get access to additional ad-free content such as exclusive full-length episodes, lectures, a book club, and virtual happy hours with Megan and Amy. For more information, visit patreon.com slash women and prime. Sources for today's episode include the Denver Post, Summit Daily, Vanity Fair, the Aspen Times, and the Sentencing Project. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.